Let's look to our Lord in prayer. And Father, on this Lord's Day, which we're viewing as Mother's Day, we have this tremendous opportunity to see how the Lordship of Jesus Christ relates to all matters of family. And there are all kinds of family dynamics whenever we are ministering on a day like today. This was noted earlier. There are going to be some who have the opportunity to, whether it be by uh, FaceTime, Skype, Zoom, connect with mom, or maybe in person. But there are going to be others who, well, mom is no longer with us. Pray this morning that you will minister to that need. There are going to be those, Father, that come from situations where um, parenthood was less than ideal in their experience growing up. Others come out of model families. So, Father, we come across this text and we see a wide range, a spectrum of various issues that are faced in family dynamics, day in, day out, year in, year out. And somehow, some way, Father, we're going to have to swing the pendulum this morning to be able to connect to all the various issues and the various emotions that are involved in a, in a day like today. So, Father, you know the needs of the hearts. You know what keeps us awake at night. You know the financial issues. You know the medical challenges. But most significantly, Father, you know the matters of the spiritual. And what's desperately needed is a dynamic relationship with you through Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. Even now, Father, when we come into your presence, we come to see Jesus. Him only. I'm praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a very vivid picture that stands out in my mind. I had just come home from college for, for winter break. And as I was walking up the steps to my bedroom upstairs, I heard this moan and this sigh coming out of my parents' room. And it was obviously in my, uh, my mother's voice. And so I inched toward the door and opened it slowly, and I saw her at her bed, on her knees, praying. It's one of those special moments where you don't barge in, you stand at the door and take it in. There is this sacred moment that's impressed upon the mind, upon the heart, upon the memory. Years later, I would be standing in front of a gathering in Colorado, and at the end of speaking multiple times, it was a time for Q&A, and I was entertaining various questions, and a woman leaned forward and said, Ask this question. What one image of your mother stands out in your mind 
to shape you as to who you are today. And I told that large gathering of the image of my mother on her knees spring. What I want to do with you is to ponder the significance of this incredible woman by the name of Hannah. And when I read this, uh, I picture a mother on her knees praying. She must be praying for her, her children, maybe praying for her parents, she might be praying for uh, co-workers, she might be praying for neighbors, hard to say. But she's a, a woman of prayer. And what I want to do with you this morning is to draw three aspects of this dynamic prayer that is being offered by Hannah, her incredible point of need, where all of a sudden God has broken into her life and her petition has been turned into praise. So no matter what your needs are this morning and what struggles that your family's faced in the last 12, 24 months, I want to go to the heart of this prayer and try to understand the dynamic here and how it relates to how it relates to your life and my life this morning. The first comes out of verses one through three. We're going to look at this in the ideal sense that as you and I, as we ponder the impact of a, a Christian mother's prayer now, I'm qualifying this. I want you to begin with me and note the joy here that she expresses in her salvation. The joy that she expresses in her salvation. And it's possible you'll be able to follow along with my outline, uh, those of you that are tracking. So now, Hannah, we are told, prayed. Now, we find that she'd been praying in the prior chapter as well. And she had been burdened, you see, because her family dynamics were anything less than ideal. In fact, there was an individual within the extended family dynamic that was continuously provoking her. <coughs> we read about it in verse 6 of chapter 1. And her, her rival, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And so now Hannah's been praying, and as she prays, the Lord now has broken into her life, and she begins in verse 1 by saying, my, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Now what I want you to notice with me is that not once, not twice, but three times, Hannah utilizes the pronoun my. This is very personal. It's, it's coming from her personal experience. It's very internal. It's coming from her heart. But the internal is now being expressed in terms of the external. Something for you and something for me. But the very onset, what this lady, this outstanding lady is doing is that she's teaching us something about the personal dynamic involved in praying effectively for those that are part of our circle, a circle that may burden our hearts, maybe special needs that are there before us. My heart exalts in the Lord. But notice that it is capital L-O-R-D. My horn is exalted in the Lord 
she goes on to say, so now we are dealing with a capital L-O-R-D, and that means that there is a personal relationship that she has with the sovereign God of the universe. This is the covenantal name, Yahweh. My heart exalts in Yahweh. My horn exalted in the Lord. And you say, Garrett, horn, what does she mean by that? Well, horn in that day and age carried with it the idea of the symbol of power. In other words, this was a statement of strength. What Hannah now is telling you and telling me is that in her weakened condition, she was able to draw strength from her personal good. Now, if you have put your faith and trust exclusively in the one we know as Jesus Christ, then what you are doing at this point is that you're able to draw upon the strength of the Lord even in your weakened condition. So now look over the past 12 months, 24 months, 36 months, and ponder the various points in time where it seemed as though you were put in what we might consider to be a weakened state. Now what I want you to do at this point is seize these opening verses. She utilizes the personal pronoun, my. She says, my heart exalts in the Lord. Here is a mother's heart. My horn exalted in the Lord. She's talking here about her strength. She's talking about her stability. And so in the midst of the challenges of life, when life seems to be rather challenging and confusing, even in this coronavirus era, God breaks in. And he brings such stability in the midst of such turmoil and brings a sense of calm and peace in the chaos of life. God breaks in. Now, Hannah goes on to say, My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. This is more than this woman Penina that she is referring to. Penina, her name means literally ruby. By the way, Hannah's name means literally grace. You see. And a derivation of it, Anna, means grace as well. And so here's this woman now that demonstrates grace. Here's a woman now that has experienced grace because he, she is not merely talking about the Lord, She's talking about my Lord. Are you able to do that? Don't keep God in the abstract in the challenges of life. Get personal. Realize that this is a personal good. Broke into time and space. And my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. And notice what we just got done singing. And so now there's the sense of a hallelujah. He's my salvation. He's the one that's providing the way, even though at times it seems as though it's so difficult to find our way. Meanwhile, you can almost hear the challenges that were being delivered blow by blow in that household. It was not an ideal household. And for many of us, as we're pondering uh, through the wide regions that are tuning in right now, we're in a less than ideal situation. Well, that was Hannah. 
here's this woman of grace in a less than ideal situation as another member of the household was provoking her. What's interesting is that the Hebrew word for provoking, which we see in chapter 1, verse 6 of 1 Samuel, uh, the word provoke carries with the idea to thunder. To thunder. Elizabeth Elliot had the privilege of meeting her. I went to school with her daughter. In one of her volumes, she, she talks about her experience growing up and her relationship to her mother. And she was going through her mother's diaries and writes that one tiny notation sends a deep pang to my heart as I, I write this book. With a red pen, mother wrote my initials and a date. And then parenthesis, um, Elizabeth Elliot writes, I remember the pain I was causing her at that time, but I thank God for his grace. It was in the margin next to a, a poem. The words went as follows. My faith burns low, my hope burns low. Only my heart's desire cries out in me. Listen, by the deep thunder of its wanton woe cries out to thee, the deep thunder. As here Hannah, this woman of grace, is experiencing the storms of life even within her own household. And so back to Elizabeth Elliot, she, she notes that at the bottom of her mother's diary she wrote quote no no might we know not what to do our eyes are upon the second chronicles 2012 so maybe this morning you don't know what to do but you keep your eyes on the lord keep it personal because he is my heart, my horn, my mouth, three mice. She also adds an eye to all of this. And now you've made your way to verse 2, haven't you? Because now in verse 2, what she talks about is the incomparable God that she knows personally. There is none holy like the Lord, and she pens at this point for us to process. This is her statement of faith. What I want you to see here is that this is the exclusive God of the universe. She might have looked around at this polytheistic culture where in the days of judges, everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes, you see. But she understood what you and I know from John 14, verse 6, the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. This God of the universe is the exclusive God who is offered an exclusive way to the sovereign God. And what fascinates us is that Hannah, this woman of grace at this point, so gracious in her ways, she might have even been drinking from the deep well of the book of Exodus of chapter 9 of verse 14. There is no one like me in all the earth. 
the Lord would have pronounced evangelistically to the Egyptian culture in their own polytheistic ways. And so now you take a step back and here in the United States of America, and for those watching overseas, what you've got to bear in mind at this point is that there's an exclusivity about God, and he has offered an exclusive way to him. And we've got to understand the significance of this. There is none besides you. So now notice how she's utilized two nuns. N-O-N-E. There is none like, holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. And then she adds, there is no rock like our God. Now, if you have traveled Israel, such as I, what you will find is that this is rocky soil. You walk from one spot to the next, and what you'll see is that this is a terrain that is, that is covered with rock. And so the person here that is processing this in verse 2 will understand something of what she's drawing from at this point. And my mind went back to an individual who in the midst of a tour of Israel, um, somewhat old, was becoming a bit weary in the midst of the tour. And all of a sudden, I began to watch as she began to lean, and I was about ready to step forward when she put her hand, extended her arm, found this large boulder, a rock, and was able to study herself. Now, for those of us that are experiencing challenges in this very unique era in which we are in, we need something to study ourselves. But I would say we need the someone to study us in this time of need. And that one is none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is no rock like our God. She must have been pondering Genesis 49, for example, verse 24, the allusion to the rocks found there in the English Standard Version, it's translated stone. But in Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, and again in verse 31, you will find one after another description of the sovereign one as the rock. So now what you and I need to do is that here's where we find our stability in life. Here's where we find our security in life. But this involves a personal relationship with the one who is sovereign in the midst of the stabilities and securities that all people are looking for in this world. Now you're up to verse 3. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Her name was Monica. And for those that are able to track with me, you'll be able to see a picture of her and her son, Augustine. I put it that there because what stood out to me in studying this passage is that this prayer, this prayer of Hannah, this woman of grace, chapter 2, was used by Mary in Mary's Magnificat, Mary's prayer that you can read about in the opening section of Luke you'll see a lot of the structuring, a lot of the phrasing there. 
He who walks in the company of the wise grows wise. Mary then was walking in the company of one of a prior era. She was well aware of Hannah's needs, Hannah's challenges. And both Hannah and Mary were with child under these this extraordinary workings of God in different ways. Mary, she, she conceived by the work of the Holy Spirit and not through any involvement of any individual. But notice that after receiving the firstborn son, she gave that son back to the Lord. You see, Hannah does it. Mary does it. And they both give glory to God for the way in which God broke into their lives. Now, here is a situation where Hannah is praising God for God breaking into her life in less than ideal circumstances. And maybe that's what you're praying for at this point in your life. God, break in. That was Monica's prayer. It was 331 A.D., Baby girls born, she would become the mother of the one of the most influential Christians of all times. Her son's name would be Constantine, or rather Augustine. Augustine was a man who had initially walked away from the principles that he had learned in the home, and so Monica was praying. She led her mother-in-law to the Lord. She led her husband to the Lord. You see, she had been in an arranged marriage. Her husband didn't know Messiah, Christ Jesus. But she put faith and trust before him, and he recognized it and accepted Christ as Savior. But Augustine, on the other hand, well, he was indifferent to it all, walked away from it all. And so she continued to pray, continued to seek God, continued to, to desire that God would break in. In fact, she described him as the son of so many tears. And maybe this morning, if I'm talking to a mother at this moment, you might be saying, I've got a particular family member who's one of so many tears. Well, she tried to bring up her children to come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior, but August. This one in particular, Augustine, he he walked away. He was pursuing self-gratification. But then then he happened into this setting where this gifted pastor by the name of Ambrose, Ambrose was teaching God's word. He would do it verse by verse. He was a brilliant man, and Augustine was a brilliant man. It seemed to be that this was meant to be. There was a convergence here, and through Monica's prayers, Augustine came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. At the time of her death, Augustine, in his grief, said, quote, Now gone from my sight, who for years had wept over me, that I might live in God's sight. And because of her prayers, This man was shaped in such a way that his writings have impacted generation by generation, century by century, the whole matter of what it means 
to be people saved by grace. You see. So now, out of all this, then, here's a woman who's expressing her joy in her prayer. So as you and I ponder the impact of a Christian mother's prayers, you note, first of all, the joy she expresses in her salvation, just like what was sung just a few moments ago. Man, that was good. Now, second of all, what I want you to see here are the perspectives that she provides in her comparisons. This is a woman who's able to say God is sovereign enough to be able to handle the extremes of life. Now, I don't know what extremes of life that you've been experiencing over the course of these days, the challenges of life that you've been confronted with in this, in this period that we find ourselves in. But I want you to begin to see the contrast here, make the comparisons here as I begin to develop this that Hannah had prayed. In verse 4, note the comparison. The bows of the mighty are broken, flip side, but the feeble bind on strength. First contrast, verse 5. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, for those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. She's noting the extremes of life, and she's pondering the way in which God breaks into the extremes. Read on a little more. The Lord kills and brings to life. See the contrast? He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low, he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor for the pillars of the earth are, and you're back at it again, aren't you? Yahweh, the Lord's sovereign over that. And on them he has set the world. Now, Hannah might say, but my world is so micro. And my experience is a microcosm of what's, what this world's all about. But you tie her experience together with what you see here at the end of this section. Uh, the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. And the micro and the macro are brought together, the extremes of life, under the sovereign workings of your God, of my God. Now take a look at that picture that comes next, if you're able to do that on your screen. And it's the picture here of Katie Luther. Katie Luther, wife of Martin Luther. And they went through an extraordinary time in their own life experience, you see. Because in the midst of their, their, their ministry, the Black Death was haunting Europe. It was a pandemic. In just five years, it had wiped out half the population. Now, population densities are always issues in the midst of pandemics. Density and mobility. And so as people were moving from the density of an urban setting and with mobility moving into other regions, they were taking this with them. And so the Black Death was haunting Europe. The urban areas in particular were affected. And Wittenberg was struck in 1527. And a lot of people fled. Yet Luther 
and his wife Katie, Katarina, who was expecting at that time. She was with child. They stayed put, and they provided care for those who were sick. What was their guide? Matthew chapter 25, verse 41 through 46. We must respect the word of Christ who said, I was sick and you did not visit me. According to this passage, we are bound to each other in such a way that no one may forsake the other in his distress, but is obliged to assist and help himself so we would be helped. And Luther spoke of circumstances where for some, fleeing was, was good. But for others, he chose to stay. And he warned Christians not to judge one another for the way in which they responded to the pandemic. But then in writing his own commitment, these are his words. We are here alone, but Christ is present too. That we might not be alone, and he will triumph in us over that old serpent, the murderer, the author of sin. However much he may bruise Christ's heel, pray for us and farewell. And Luther and Katharina survived. And they had added impact upon those that they were ministering to through the course of the years. Because this woman, whom Luther described as his morning star of Wittenberg, would get up at four each morning and care for the various responsibilities of the home. She was the financial administrator of it all. And they would take in as many as 30 students in addition to their children, as well as boarders who would come, and she would provide the care that was needed. They also had orphans that would come into their life. At Martin's death in 1546, his Katie lived on for six more years. The writer tells us she lived to see her children, except Magdalena, who had died young, have great impact upon others for the cause of Jesus Christ. You, see. you tie all that together, and just as Mary was able to look back and say, he who walks in the company of the wise grows wise, as she looked back upon Hannah's experience, so we can look back upon the experiences of a Monica praying for Augustine or Katie as she is praying likewise for her children in the midst of a pandemic. And through it all, what you see here are the extremes of life in verse 4 through 8. But in the midst of the extremes, you make the contrast, you make the comparisons, you draw the perspectives, and you're saying God is sovereign in the midst of it all. Isn't this powerful? See how all this relates to our current situation, what you're experiencing, what I'm experiencing in this very day and age in which we live. But out of all this now, there's one more aspect to this prayer I simply want to draw out for you. And thirdly, I want you to see here the faith that she communicates in her Messiah. She's got a way, she's got a way of narrowing the focus. This nine. He will guide the feet of his faithful ones. Now this is an interesting word that we're able to spot here. The faithful ones. There's a challenge here 
as to whether or not we're dealing at this moment with the singular or with the plural. But what we are looking at at this point is that we are dealing with the one that she refers to as her Hasid. He will guard the feet of his Hasid, whom she's going to connect in terms of her thinking in this prayer with the one she would describe as the king and as the anointed one. Keep reading. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. See how she does contrast here? But for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. Now remember how Peninnah in the household had thundered against Hannah in chapter 1, verse 6. And do you remember the use of the word thunder in the prayer that Elizabeth Elliot had spotted in the midst of her mother's diary? What I want you to see here now is that Samuel is able to see, as he someday would look back upon this, that here is the God of the universe who will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king. You see, the focus is being narrowed to the one you and I are going to know as Jesus Christ. Narrowing of the focus. I was a teenager. And I had a basketball in my hands in the backyard. We had a hoop and garage and late at night, homework done. That had to be done. Mom insisted. Chores had to be done. Music had to be practiced, played. Now it's time for sports. I would have loved to reverse that order. So there I am. I'm out there and I'm dribbling and and I'm getting ready because I'm going to be trying out for the varsity team. And I try my jump shot, hits the rim. Try again, hits the rim. Try it again, hits the rim. All of a sudden, behind me, I begin to hear this dribbling sound. Gets a little louder. Gets a little louder. A little louder. I turn and it's my mum. She's practicing her dribbling. And before I can bat an eye, she delivers a jump shot from the perimeter and sinks it. And at that point, I narrowed my focus to baseball rather than basketball. You see, moms have a way of narrowing our focus. Well, now, notice here how this woman of grace, that's her name, Hannah, is she at the end of her prayer narrows your focus to the one you and I know as, as Jesus Christ. For you see, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. And exalt the horn of his anointed. The Hebrew word, Messiah. There is more than irony to this, you see. There would come a time when Samuel would be told by God it's time to anoint a king. So he makes his way to this region known as Bethlehem. Bethlehem. And he goes to Jesse and he wants to anoint the one who is to be Saul's successor. 
And so there's a, there is a, a group of sons, and they're tall, they're strong, they're handsome, majestic in appearance. One by one, they step in front of, of Samuel. And when he came and he looked at Eliab, he thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees him. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. There's one more. It's so easy to be overlooked, but he's out in the field tending sheep. He's brought in. And so the one we know as David is brought in. We're told in verse 12 of 1 Samuel chapter 16, he was ruddy, beautiful eyes, handsome, and the Lord said, Arise, anoint him. This is he. And he anoints the king. There would come a time when Jesus Christ, Christ means Messiah, would make his way down the streets of Jerusalem. And people would be acknowledging him as the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the king. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now you see all this ties together as the narrowing of the focus takes place and our eyes are shifted ultimately to the one we know as Jesus Christ. You know, if you're looking at the screen, you might be able to spot if you click on a picture of the woman by the name of Helena. Now, Helena stands out in history. Helena was the mother of Constantine, emperor of Rome. But what's fascinating is that in her latter years, she went on a mission trip to the Promised Land. And if you make your way into Manger Square in Bethlehem, you're going to see a church there. And furthermore, at Easter, where so many follow the Via Della Rosa, you make your way to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. You'll see a church there. This is the work of Helena. Because in her latter years, she went to Palestine. She sought out the original locations associated with the life of Jesus Christ. And she oversaw the construction of these churches. Bethlehem. One of Calvary, Olivet, Bethany, and this pagan temple of Aphrodite, she had it removed from the place where she believed the resurrection of Jesus Christ occurred. It was torn down, replaced by the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and she went out of her way, this woman, to have high impact upon generation after generation, and now to this very day in 2020, People make their ways, their pilgrimages to Palestine and to the Promised Land in order to be able to see uh, the place where Christ was born, to see where Christ died. And the fingerprints of this mother are everywhere, you see. What I want to be able to say is that when a woman pursues the ideals and she comes to the Lord in prayer, She's interceding and she's asking for God to be intervening. 
the joy that she expresses in her salvation, verses 1 through 3. The perspectives she provides in her comparisons. She's making contrasts, the good and the bad of life. The faith that she communicates in her Messiah as she narrows your focus and narrows my focus upon the one we know as Jesus Christ stands out. And that's why, standing in front of a large crowd in a gathering in Colorado, a woman raises her hand and she asks, what one image stands out in your mind when it comes to this whole relationship you had with your mother? I pause. Take a deep breath. And I recall the time when I, I walked into this bedroom, stood at the door. I've been hearing some sighs, some groans. It was this mother on her knees praying for her oldest, it's me, down to her youngest, one with Down syndrome, is with Jesus now, Caroline. Everybody in between. And I think about that now because she's with the Lord. And I think about her legacy. And I think about her prayers. And her prayers last far beyond her earthly stay. So I end by simply saying, your prayers will last far beyond your earthly stay. Invest in what matters most. Invest in who matters most, in Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. Father, thanking you now. Thanking you for the opportunity to narrow the focus. We get to express the joy. If we're being honest, we see the extremes of life and we make the comparisons. But what we have to do is to narrow the focus, the focus of faith, upon the exclusive one who came to die for our sins, the anointed one, the King of kings and Lord of lords. May we be people of prayer. May all of us be inspired by what Samuel experienced in his relationship with his mother. May be stirred to do what matters most and invest in what outlasts us as we trust you and you alone to be sovereign over family and life. And for this, Father, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.